Hi, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Wildlife for You podcast. This is the show where we talk about wildlife and wildlife conservation in ways that make sense. I'm your host, Stephanie Payne, and I'm joined here by my super awesome co-host, Daryl Radajak. And as promised, we are bringing you part two of our snake series. Yes, that we are, folks. And so you see, last week we started talking about snakes, and we were hoping to tell you about how crazy cool they are. And as you can imagine, which happens so often, Stephanie like gets to rambling and carrying on. And before we knew it, we spent almost 45 minutes talking about how snakes like slither around and how their venom works. And then it kind of dawned on us that, you know, we're, we're probably not making any snake converts here. We're not making anyone into a snake lover, especially since we're just talking about slithering and venom. So anyway, if anyone has like a, a, a fear of creepy, crawly, venomous things, we didn't do them any justice last week. So we're going back to another snake episode. You know, Daryl, you never did explain why slithering freaks you out so much. Well, I kind of sort of did like behind the scenes and I explained it to you, but I'm not about to uh, tell that to everyone on the air. So (laughs) (laughs) you're no fun or you're scared. Not sure which I don't suppose I can shame you into confessing. And I'll take that as a no. So moving on. (laughs) Good move, by the way. (laughs) Anywho, uh, last week, we, we apparently did all we could to keep people thinking snakes are kind of scary. Okay, that, that is absolutely untrue. Tons of people are on my side here and think that toxic saliva and the mechanics behind slithering are totally cool topics. Okay, there, there might be one or two. I wouldn't say tons, but there might be a couple. But anyway, you, you keep telling yourself that, but... Even though we stressed, when we were talking about all those issues last week, we stressed the fact that 80% of snake species are harmless. I do believe, I don't think we did a really good job explaining why snakes are so cool. So I actually convinced Stephanie to do part two of snakes where we could focus on some really cool characteristics that they have. Okay, we need to talk about your memory, because I'm pretty sure I was the one who actually suggested a follow-up episode. Yeah, now I'm just ignoring you, Steph. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, you, you know what I mean about cool characteristics, um, right, listeners? Uh, it's the things that make people say, wow, that's absolutely amazing. Okay, so in addition to a short memory, you sure do have high hopes, don't you, Dee? Yeah, I always do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I am not sure that we're going to get to the point where we convert people into being snake lovers, but we can definitely talk about some pretty cool things regarding snakes. Yeah, well, I do plan on giving it my best shot. So where do you want to start today? What what do you think would be an interesting snake characteristic that we can start off with and discuss? Well, since you accused me of only talking about creepy factors, I'm actually shocked that you'd be brave enough to ask, but... What do you say we start by talking about their amazing sensory system, which allows them to detect infrared radiation, which then enables them to generate thermal images? Okay. I I do think that's a great idea. It's not as as scary the last couple of topics, but if you don't mind, I think I'm going to take the lead because you're probably going to want to focus on the fact that most of the pit vipers, which tend to be the more venomous snakes, they're the ones that usually take advantage of their heat sensing ability. 
you know, I can't help that one side of my wildlife or one of, one of my wildlife triggers, actually, it was just completely set off last week. So, you know, I just needed people to understand the difference between venomous and poisonous. I know. And we, we ended up spending about 20 minutes on that, that long topic, but duly noted. So um, you will be happy to know stuff that when it comes to this heat sensing ability, it, it's not just pit vipers that use this skill. So besides the vipers, there's like some pythons and boas that also have the same heat seeking organs. But before we get into any of that, um, let's, let's first to describe to everyone what we're talking about. So do you want to take a stab at describing this whole heat seeking uh, organ type of thing? Yeah, sure. I, I think I can do this. Um, okay, so I imagine most folks have watched one of those police shows on TV where they show images from an infrared thermal imaging camera. You know, these these will often show a victim like fleeing in the middle of the night, and the image on the screen will show the person glowing as this bright white blobby object on the screen. That's because the camera is not picking up the different colors that it sees, rather that camera is detecting the different temperatures that it sees. So what happens is when, you know, this is, uh, okay, so what happens is that it's, it is assigning the highest temperature, uh, that, that bright white, um, to the warm thing, while the coldest temperatures are usually black. So now think about the environment. You know, you're out and it's the middle of the night. You know, when the sun goes down, everything begins to cool off. And the trees, the grass, the concrete, pretty much everything around begins to cool off since the sun is obviously no longer shining on it. However, one thing that does not cool off during the night are mammals and birds since they are endotherms, meaning warm blooded. So endotherms, instead, they maintain a, a, a pretty constant body temperature, usually in like the 96 to 104 degree Fahrenheit temperature range for, for all mammals. And that can go slightly higher, you know, for some birds, but those warm temperatures, they're all because of their, of, of that animal's metabolic rate. So like if, if heat loss exceeds heat generation, metabolism increases to make up the loss um, or, or the creature might shiver to raise its body temperature, but it's always maintaining that higher temperature than the ambient air around it, you know, usually when it's night. So when you look through a thermal imaging camera at night, birds and mammals tend to be the warmest things around because of, of those things I just mentioned. So that's why those cameras see mammals glowing as these bright white blobs, since again, they are the hottest temperatures in that field of view. Very, very good visual there, Steph. And if you don't mind, I'm already going to take my first tangent. One of the coolest things that I did back when I was when I was working in Tennessee, uh, I was working closely with one of the wildlife officers, and he had received one of those thermal imaging cameras, and it was supposed to do some investigative work. And he called me up one day and he said, Daryl, you got to see this. You got to come out and I got to show you this thermal imaging camera. And we went out to the county where he worked and we used that camera. And because most of that camera work, when you're watching the police shows or the military use of those cameras, they're usually in an urban environment. And you have to understand in an urban environment, there's a lot of 
man-made heat. So lights and, and generators and motors, there's lots of things that are pretty warm even during the nighttime. Um, and so you see a lot, of, a lot of things happening that are glowing bright white because they're hot. When we took that camera out to the middle of nowhere wilderness, the only thing that it would detect would be the, the animals, the, the mammals, the birds. It was amazing. It just, it, it was just an epiphany of, wow, you can just see everything that's out there with these cameras. So that was my first introduction. And I think you did a good job explaining uh, what you're seeing with those, those glowing white bodies. So now let's bring this back to the whole snake discussion. Now, there, believe it or not, there's certain snakes out there. As mentioned before, like the, the vipers, the boas, the pythons, what they have is they have these heat-seeking pits on their face. Now, at first, the function of these pits, it was theorized that uh, they, they used it for this, this kind of thermal sensing type of, uh, of use for those pits, but since then, there's been detailed studies that have been conducted as to how those pits actually function. Now, there's this Dr. David Julius from the University of California who looked at these organs, and he looked at them at the molecular level. And what he found kind of confirmed what those animal physiologists believed all along about them as, as heat-seeking organs. And so they, they absolutely confirm those organs really do detect heat. So yeah, it's, it's actually quite fascinating and it may take a minute. So, you know, do you make sure that you're sitting down and that you're super comfortable? So Dr. Julius, like you just said, he is actually a molecular biologist and he did some really cool, but really pretty complicated work. So they looked at how this pit organ, how it works. Now, this is a specialized L'Oreal organ. You know, that's the name of it. It's located between the eye and the nostril on both sides of the face in pit vipers in a slightly different location in boas with a different name in pythons. So, so with this L'Oreal pit organ, it's, you know, it's a hollow chamber and there's a, a suspended membrane inside that hollow chamber. So this membrane, it's really, really thin and it serves as an infrared antenna. And that membrane, it's really rich in like mitochondria. It's highly vascularized or full of, of vessels. And it's densely innervated or full of nerves, primarily afferent nerve fibers from the trigeminal or we'll say the facial nerves branch of the somatosensory system. So the somatosensory system, that, that means sensations that have conscious perception like pressure, pain, temperature, vibrations, um, you know, stuff like that. Anyhow, so these fibers, they convey infrared signals from that L'Oreal pit organ to the optic tetum of the brain where they converge with input from other sensory modalities. So like I, I said a second ago, boas and pythons, they have a slightly different one. They have a labial pit organ, which the big difference here is it means that it's distributed over the snout um, and it also lacks that complex architecture that's seen in that L'Oreal pit of the vipers. Now, regardless, they are, are similarly vascularized and innervated by these trigeminal fibers, but it's at a much, much lower density. So long story short, which I realize it is probably way too late for that, 
But these organs, they detect and transduce infrared signals into nerve pulses by using an unbiased transcriptional profiling to identify transient receptor channels as infrared receptor channels on sensory nerve fibers that innervate this pit organ. So all of that, this, it, it infers that snakes detect infrared signals through a mechanism involving that radiant heating of the pit organ rather than photochemical transduction, meaning that they're not using their eyes to see heat. Like when we were talking about that camera, kind of, it's kind of an eye seeing the heat. They're not using their eyes to see that heat, but they, they do suspect the superimposition of that thermal image and their visual image within the snake's brain that really enable it to like track animals with this super awesome precision. So, you know, and for the record, you told me I'd geek out on this, but for the record, yeah, the Western diamondback rattlesnake actually seems to have the most highly evolved ability to detect infrared radiation. And I don't know if that's like amongst all creatures, but I do know it is among the, 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 the snakes that can do this. So all of that, all of that is a way more complicated way than we need um, in, in to discuss like things here, but it definitely confirms that the snake air quote, it sees heat very much like those thermal imaging cameras that the police and the military use because it's using that pit organ to pick up those things and it overlays it with the, the photochemical transduction or the, the visual cues. All right. So why is this so beneficial and used by snakes? Well, you have to understand, folks, there's three primary snakes that have these pit organs or these heat sensors. And those, once again, they're the vipers, the pythons, and the boas. Now, these snakes often hunt and prey on small mammals, and they also tend to hunt at night. So they will simply lie in wait near some type of game trail or another location where, where mammals, their, their prey source, where they're likely to pass. And when a small mammal comes within range, their, their pit sensors kind of take over and they'll activate and they can detect that mammal even in total darkness. Now, remember, they do not need any visible light whatsoever. So how stinking cool is that? That is pretty stinking cool, you know, if you ask me. Now, I should remind folks, especially here in North America, that none of these snakes are hunting humans or large mammals for that matter. You know, the pit vipers, like the rattlesnakes, they typically feed on small mammals like mice or voles, you know, squirrels possibly maybe even you know a rabbit if if the sizes are all working out right now if you go down to south america or in asia where they have those you know those two three hundred pound pythons and or boa constrictors you know you're on your own there <laughs> so so daryl what are the other cool things that that we can talk about okay well we started out with a really cool one but can I actually talk about a specific species of snake and its its defense mechanism? It's it's kind of one of my favorites. Sure. What is it? Have you ever seen a hog nose snake? Uh, Eastern, Western, or Southern? <laughs> you brat! I should have known you. You'd know all about hog nose snakes. I'll, I'll tell you what, I will let you talk about their defense mechanism, but I do have to mention their adorable little turned up nose, you know, not now, not all hog nose have a really prominent nose, but the ones that do, you just, you want to touch it because it's, it's this just like, oh, so cute little tiny baby pig nose on a snake. 
That they do. They, there's some that really, really stick out there, and they're they're actually quite cool in the snake world. But that's not the cool part about them. So if you can get past their cuteness, and you you do like if you see these snakes and you you try to pick them up, after all, uh, they're quite harmless. Although you know what, I'm going to tell you this. I, I'm sure you know this already, but but hognose do have a a venom that is completely harmless to humans, but they, they do have a venom in them that uh, helps them secure some of their prey items. So anyway, they are harmless to humans. Um, but so if you go to pick up these hognose snakes, you'll see the exact defense mechanism I am talking about. Literally, folks, they are the reptile world's greatest actors, like, and they're comedy actors at that. So you go to pick them up and they, they literally roll over and they, they, they play dead. So whenever they feel threatened, they're going to feign, feign death as if it's their last few breaths on earth. And it, it's, not like, it's not like the opossum that just kind of looks immediately dead. No, no, no. These guys, they look like they're putting on the most dramatic display, like twisting and writhing and rolling over pretending like they're mortally wounded and the, they'll even open up their mouth as wide as they can as if they're like gasping their last breath on earth so it truly is quite comical to watch and i promise you if snakes could talk you you could almost hear this snake as it's writhing breathing its last breath like kind of in a wicked witch uh kind of voice from dorothy uh the wizard of oz saying oh i'm out I'm melting. What a world. What a world. <laughs> if a snake could talk. You, apparently you don't know parcel tongue, do you? Go on with your Harry Potter self out of here, would you? <laughs> you know, your Harry Potter references are getting up there with my bear tangents. Hey, speaking of mm -hmm. bear tangents. Uh, shut it. All right, fine. Anyway, if y'all get a chance to Google a hog nose snake, video of them like feigning death and better yet what i'm going to do i'm going to post a video of a hog nose snake on our wildlife for you facebook page that way you can see exactly what i'm talking about with this big acting display that they go through so they truly are remarkable and yes they're very comical so okay steph let's let's talk about another cool thing about snakes so what you got um you know well there's no way we can talk about snakes without talking about how they smell in 3D. Oh, that's actually a great one. So you're probably going to be talking about their bifurcated tongue. Heck no. I'm going to be talking about their forked tongue because no one will know what the heck we're talking about if we talk about bifurcation. <laughs> Touche there. Well done. So usually it's me catching you with those big fancy words, but... Uh, thank you for explaining that. But yes, tell tell everyone the purpose of a forked or a bifurcated tongue and what what the snakes actually use those for. I would be happy to. Um, so, so yeah, everyone knows that snakes have a forked or split tongue. You know, this is actually one of the features that kind of freaks people out, but but it is really, really cool. Oftentimes, when you see a snake on the prowl, you know, it's in search of food, whether it be a small mammal, like a mouse, or maybe a bird, or you know, frog, some amphibian, whatever, even, even insects. Anyhow, so they're going to often try to smell where their prey is. Now, 
Remember, animals are usually really great at hiding, so they might not be easy to see. And most snakes aren't equipped with those infrared sensors that, that I geeked out over. So, you know, if, if a snake smells prey in its area, and yes, they can smell through their nostrils, then they're going to go into stalking mode where they're going to try to really hone in on it. And this is where their tongue comes in. You know, the snake will stick its forked tongue out, spread the two sides, you know, apart, kind of like it's their tongue is trying to do the splits and they'll flick it rapidly up and down. So to drastically oversimplify, so I don't, you know, OG on anybody again. Uh, just so you know, OG means over geek our listeners. Yeah, it does. So anyway, so, so what it's doing there is it's tasting the air, you know, think of it as another way of, of smelling things, you know, and, and they're splitting their, their tongue again. You got to keep this visual in your mind. So the snake then draws in its tongue and it runs its tongue across the top of its mouth over a specialized organ here called the Jacobson's or the, verm I think it's the vermonasal, vermeronasal. Vermeronasal um, organ. Okay. Yeah, I thought so. So, but they're pretty much these two little holes at the top of its mouth and it can literally taste which side where the stimulus is stronger. So it can really help them, you know, get led directly to their prey. Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah. So just like a bear can use its nose to lead itself to a food source, a snake can use its tongue to do the same thing. Really? You, did you have to get a bear reference in there even after I warned you? Yeah, it's what I do. <laughs> yes. But yes, your your analogy is correct. You know, that forked tongue, it can help lead a snake directly to its prey by simply tasting the molecules in the air and determining, you know, where those molecules are more concentrated, left or right, essentially. And that's why I said, that, you know, a snake, they can kind of smell in 3D. So, you know, now, now tell me that, is that not stinking cool? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of stinking going on in this episode, but it's all good. <laughs> now, I, I do think the flicking forked tongue and uh, forked or forked, um, I was, I over enunciated it before, but the, the flicking forked tongue you mentioned, it does freak a lot of people out. And so just understand that. No, knowing what it's used for, though, should make a ton of sense. And hopefully it'll help people understand why snakes do what they do. So they're, they're not sticking out their tongue to like just cause you to freak out. They're actually trying to sniff out their prey when they're doing that. So now if you can only tell me why possums have a bifurcated penis, because I sure the heck can tell you right now, they're not smelling anything with it. <laughs> oh my gosh, D. Uh, we already talked about that on our possum episode. And I don't think we went into great detail, but we mentioned how early explorers actually did think that they used the bifurcated penis uh, in the female possum's nostrils. But <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, wait a minute. So let's let us please not go further on possums. We are supposed to be talking about snakes. Yeah. The good old mystery of bifurcation. Well, <laughs> at least we know why snakes have it. Their, their bifurcated or forked tongue literally helps them find food. Now, since we are circling down the drain really, really fast, do you think we should start wrapping up this episode? Yeah, I imagine we better. Um, snakes usually aren't the, the hottest topic that people want to talk about, but I think we did a good job at addressing, addressing some of the things that people might be uh, 
concerned about or or whenever they see a snake that literally literally freaks them out. So anyway, if we don't stop um, this podcast, you're probably going to get more into some Harry Potter stuff. Now that I could actually talk about for hours. Question though, so like a, a couple episodes back, you you've made a big thing about the word literally but you just said it does that mean that we're over that we can all go back to talking normally again no no because every time i re-listen to our podcast when we're done i i count the literallys and we're we're both pretty equal we use it literally yes i literally do that (laughs) literally every time yes that is so cool literally yeah it's one of those things now now you you buy a new car you see that new car all over the place i just it rings in my mind every time I hear that word now. So thanks for bringing that back up. You're welcome. That's what I can do to help. So let's go ahead and let's get this show wrapped up. Do you have any shout outs that you want to make? Yes, I I do want to make a shout out. So instead of me calling out on any individuals, I, I do want to say something to a large group of individuals who uh, they're, they're awesome. They're diehard wildlife lovers, but they're they're actually going through a tough time. And Steph, I know you know all about this because for the last year and a half, there has been this throng of people that became captivated with this bear named that they they nicknamed it Bruno, but it was a bear it, that came out of southern Wisconsin that started making. Wasn't like wasn't one of our. Maybe our very first podcast, wasn't oh, yeah. it about Bruno? Yeah, it, it explained kind of what's going on with this individual bear. And the thing that made him so special was he went on this walkabout. He, he literally came out of southern Wisconsin and made a beeline heading due south. And so he walked from Wisconsin into Iowa. He crossed into Illinois, he like swam the Mississippi River a couple of times uh, went into Illinois, crossed back into Iowa, then came down, hit Missouri, ended up in Arkansas towards the end of last year where he denned up for the winter time. And they were, everyone was rooting for this bear. So this, this bear had a Facebook following of some 200,000 plus followers because he was just making the news almost every night whenever he'd be sighted in a new town. And you have to understand he crossed through many, many areas that were devoid of bears, so they knew which bear it was. Anyway, he ended up getting tagged by Missouri conservation officials because he was getting into a predicament near the city of St. Louis. And so he was he was well known. He was tagged. And lo and behold, he denned in Arkansas uh, this past winter. And come springtime, they were hoping that he would wake up and kind of settle down and find a mate. But guess what he did? He he packed, <laughs> put on the hiking shoes again, and he's headed south again. And before long, he crossed over into Louisiana, which obviously is the, the last state you hit before the Gulf of Mexico. But sadly, uh, Bruno, Bruno, unfortunately, uh, met his demise. He was struck by a they believe a tractor trailer or a semi truck, and it wounded him so badly, broke um, uh, broke him up pretty bad, and so he was he was euthanized humanely, and unfortunately he he hit the last of his trail in in Louisiana. The reason I'm bringing this up is, again, there's 200,000 people that were following the plate of Bruno, 
And it just goes to show that they, they're very, very interested in wildlife. And a lot of these folks just don't know much about wildlife. And I want to I want to just let everyone know that even wildlife biologists, we 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 get hit in the feels sometimes when you you get attached to an animal. And so I just want everyone to know that um, it, it's okay to be sad, but there's literally thousands or tens of thousands of other bears out there and other wildlife out there that need you caring for them and continuing to care about wildlife. So big shout out to all of those folks, you are awesome. I'll continue to to try to educate you on bears and other uh, other animals, but uh, just just understand we we totally understand your your grief and sadness right now. Yeah, and I am I am sort of glad that you called that out. You know, we're always stressing how difficult life is when you're a wild animal, and as humans, growing attached to an individual wild animal is understandable. But it, it also makes it extremely, extremely hard when things go wrong. You know, so the best thing that you can do is remember the bear. He lived a wild and free life. And, you know, truth be told, that particular bear has probably seen more things than, you know, anyone there, you know, that, that, that most of us have seen, you know. But long story short, we have to love a species and do all we can to benefit species, not just individuals within a species that seem to garner a spotlight. All right, very well put. Thank you for adding that on. I should have said that, but you did well. So you want me to, to do the honors tonight and close us out? I would love if you would, sir. Okay, so as always, folks, we, we would like to thank our listeners. You guys are the reason why we do this podcast. We obviously love talking about wildlife, but to have an audience that enjoys listening and learning from us is the reason why we do it. So thank you so, so very much. Now, if you think what you're listening to is pretty good stuff, go ahead and tell your friends and family and enemies about us so they can listen to us too. Um, so you can find us on all of those podcast platforms. There's a couple that that most people like, you should be able to find us there. But one of the easiest things for you to do is, is visit Wildlife For You on Facebook. You just type in Wildlife For You, become a follower. We always post when the podcasts are released and we, we also put a lot of other information out there on our Facebook page. Again, that's Wildlife For You on Facebook. We also have a website, but uh, we'll, we'll be getting in editing that uh, hopefully within the next couple of months because we got some updating to do. So. Thank you so, so very much for following us and being such an advocate for wildlife, because as you know, when it comes to wildlife, your knowledge often means their existence. Night, folks. You had to bring up a possum penis. How old are you? Are you ever going to mature? <laughs> Me mature? Okay. How about this, Steph? What is the name of Hagrid's pet spider? Aragog. And it wasn't a spider, mind you, it was an acromantula. Exactly. <laughs>